Welcome to Flourish or Fold Stories of Resilience. I'm Dr. Taryn Marie. And on this series, we have the opportunity to hear from well-known people who tell their often surprising, lesser well-known stories of resilience. Today, we have with us Mike Quick. Now, Mike was recently elected into the 2020 class for the NFL Pro Football Hall of Fame. But before that, Mike had an illustrious career as a beloved Philadelphia Eagles wide receiver. Join us today as Mike talks with us about the fifth practice of particularly resilient people, the practice of possibility, the ability to see what is on the horizon for us. And if we can't see our potential fully, how he was able to surround himself with people who were able to help him see his potential and what was available for him in his future. Join us now. So glad you're here. Well, hello. Welcome to our podcast. We'd, we'd like Thank to, you. you're welcome. You're welcome. We're glad to, to have you here today. We're going to give you an opportunity to introduce yourself and talk about who Mike Quick is. So that's the introduction. I am Mike Quick. Um, who is he? That could be complicated. but mm, I hope it will be. Complicated and then simple all at the same time. Even yeah. better. Yeah. It's interesting when, when, you know, when I walk the streets of Philadelphia, the attention, the acknowledgement that I get constantly. Um, and I, I think if you're, not, if you're not a person that's grounded in some way, that all of that stuff can really ruin a person. And mm. I have seen it ruin many young people. Um, but... Um, I'm a kid who grew up in a little bitty hamlet in North Carolina, um, one of nine kids, and there, my mom actually raised 10 of us. Um, and, you know, from a very humble beginning, and, and I think all of those things in the way I, I was brought up, the way I grew up, um, the things that I dealt with as a kid, I think all of those things play a big part in who I am now and the mm-hmm. reason why uh, when I walk the streets of Philadelphia or when I walk into a place in Philadelphia and people recognize me and want to acknowledge and I still get crazy love in Philadelphia although it's been 28 years since I caught a football I still get crazy love in Philadelphia but if I didn't come from where I came from I think that I could get carried away with all of that mm-hmm. and I think that that could be a problem and I, I've seen it be a problem for some people. So I'm very thankful for the way that I, I was raised, for the humble beginnings, and for everything that I have now and, and everything that I've been able to uh, establish. And, I, and I've, re- I've really worked hard to get to this point in my life. Uh, but during the course of all of that work, it was never really work. Tell us a little bit more about what what keeps you grounded? What's what's protected you from being ruined by that type of attention? Well, growing up in a house with nine kids, um, it's you get some attention, but there's so many people. 
there's so much, you know, there's only but so much to go around because there's so many people. Um, I can barely keep track of my two children. Yeah, see? And, and you know, for, for me, because my father wasn't in the house, my older brothers, I'm the youngest of the five boys, and my older brothers, they kept me in check, in check because I was, even at a young age, I was one of these athletes that could do anything. Mm-hmm. I was really talented. Um, and the fact that I had to play with older guys most of the time, my older brothers and their friends, just made it tougher for guys my age to compete against me. Mm-hmm. Um, but those guys always would grab me in the collar and put me in check. So if I started to think too highly of myself, or if I started to, like, I was never allowed to talk smack at guys. You know, mm-hmm. I could run rings around many guys my age, my size, but I wasn't allowed to talk smack because one of my brothers would smack me <laughs> beside the head. You get smacked for talking smack. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I think all of the, you know, that type of environment, um, and all of my brothers were really good athletes. They were all great athletes. And I just kind of watched those guys as I was growing up, watch what they did, and I just wanted to do similar to what they did. They were all, like, really talented. And not only that, they were really good men. And that, to me, was very important. That, um, you know, they were good examples for me, and I always wanted to be a good example. They were phenomenal men. They and are phenomenal men. Mm-hmm. Um, my brother, who's four years my senior, I remember the um, his senior year in, in high school, and he was voted most outstanding athlete in the school. And even then, at a young age, I was in my head, when I become a senior, I'm going to do that. Mm. And that's what I did. Mm-hmm. So my senior year, I got that same award, the best athlete in the school. That's incredible. And it's a, and it's a big school. My graduating class was over 700 kids. Um, so that's quite an honor. Yeah, yeah. But I just I, I knew early on that I was really talented in sports. Mm. Mm. Yeah. So, so you, you did know, you did have a sense of your, of your talents early on. And I, I think what's striking about you saying that is as I've, you know, watched some news clips and some interviews, you know, about your about your life and, mm-hmm. and growing up. One of the things that I found really striking was a lot of your coaches early on at that high school age that you were talking about yes. actually said, Mike didn't know. He didn't know how talented he was. Right. Did did you did you know then and you just kept it hidden how much you knew? No, no, no. I knew I was talented, but they saw a different level that mm-hmm. I couldn't see. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, yeah, I could, I could do a lot of things, but they saw like what I was able to do when I got to college without even breaking a stride. Same thing I did in high school, and from college going to the NFL, and that is a major leap. Mm-hmm. There are so many great athletes that are a great collegiate players. But when they get to the professional level, mm-hmm. they don't even measure up. Mm-hmm. I didn't have a speed bump at all. You know, I go from you know, wow. playing, from being an outstanding player in college to right into the NFL. And my second year in the NFL, I led the league in receiving. I was, you know, I had a, my second year in the league. I'm the top receiver in the National Football League. So there was not, there was not even a speed bump for me. Mm-hmm. So. I think my coaches, even when I was young, could see that mm-hmm. you know I was gifted, that I had something special 
but I didn't see that. Mm-hmm. I mean, I knew that I could outplay you know guys my age that I was playing with, but I didn't see just what was on the horizon. Mm-hmm. I didn't see that um, that it could take me as far as my talent has taken me. Yeah, yeah. You didn't have the bigger the bigger picture. They had an expanded no. Listen, aperture. I told you, I'm from a little hamlet. That's the name of the town that I'm from, mm-hmm. and it is indeed a hamlet. It's well named. It's about, you know, they said it's six thousand people. I don't believe there's six thousand people in Hamlet. You think they Maybe counted some a of holiday. them twice? They counted the dogs and the holiday and all. <laughs> there's not six thousand people in Hamlet, but growing up like that, you don't get to see the lifestyle that I've been able to live. You don't get to see anybody unless you're looking at television. Uh, so I didn't really have this vision. I couldn't dream as big as my life has become. How did having people who believed in you, how, how did that um, you know, facilitate your career when there were people who could see what was possible for you before you could see what was possible for you? Well, I, I think the, the, when I think about that, I think about the one day that I sit down with one of my coaches and he says, this is what you need to do. And the fact that I listened at that moment in that particular meeting made a huge difference in my life. Um, when, the, when all the scouts came around to recruit me, all these big Division I schools, and then they looked at my transcript and I wasn't academically eligible, that was a problem. But my football coach, Ron Crawley, sat down and he says, you know, you really should look at doing this for one year. I'm like, coach, I mean, that's, uh, and I'm thinking, a whole year? I got to spend a year before I can go. That means that it's going to be five years before I get to the NFL <laughs> or to the NBA. Because at that point, I was, I averaged 23 points in basketball. I was the leading scorer in my conference in basketball. Um, so I was thinking basketball, and then I, I knew that I was, you know, I could have gone to the Olympics in track and field as a high hurdler. So I got all these things going on, and this dude's telling me that I need to take another year. <laughs> and at the time, I was thinking, that's crazy. Mm-hmm. But when you're 18, you know, you, you think a year is a, a hell of a long time. But it's So I did listen to him that day. He said, you should consider one of these military academies. Mm-hmm. So I go to, um, one was Massanutten Military Academy, the other one was Fork Union Military Academy. So I ended up going to Fork Union Military Academy and... The academy really helped me in a lot of ways. Um, it established a discipline that I didn't know. It established a lot of things in a, it was a lifestyle that I wasn't used to. And the, um, I was on the Dean's list. I was on the honor roll for the first time because the, the academy forced me to apply myself mm-hmm. academically. So I went to school all the time. I didn't miss a lot of days of school, but it was really so that I could go to practice because I wanted to play, because I loved to play, and I loved to compete. I wasn't interested in school, um, but once I got into the academy and I understood the importance of, and they made you because we had a two-hour study hall every night, and it was monitored by some of the, uh, the colonels and the generals. They walked around to make sure that we were on point doing what we should be doing. Um, just that whole atmosphere and the order that you had to have all your clothes in, not just the clothes hanging in your closet, but your socks and your underwear and everything had to be in a special place, folded a certain way, 
all of these disciplines that um, at home I wasn't used to. I didn't have to do that at home. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was something that I needed, and it really made a difference in my life. Mm. Yeah. So I listened to Ron Crawl that day. That's you know the bottom line. Yeah. When my coach set me down that day and started talking about these schools, I bought into what he was saying, and uh, he was right. Yeah. Mm. That's probably why I'm sitting here talking to you today, because of that one conversation that I had <laughs> when I listened to my coach. Mm-hmm. Isn't that isn't that fascinating that there are these these moments, these key inflection points where yeah. things could go one way or the other. Oh, absolutely. And I know that we all have those in our lives where you know if you take one road or you take the other road and you know you just never know. Yeah. It's the road less traveled. Mm. Is that Robert Frost? Indeed. And that road has made all the difference. Sure has. Were there, if you look back and, you know, you, you can sort of put your finger on this moment with your coach where you, you decided to listen, yep. even though a year seemed like an eternity. Were there other key inflection points along the way, sort of intersections where you could have gone right or you could have gone left? And looking back, you see that those were also key moments that dramatically impacted your life and being here today? So that was probably the main one, but there are others that, you know, things, decisions that I made um, or didn't make that affected, could have affected even uh, more severely, but that's probably the main one. Mm -hmm. It's the most important one. Yeah. Yeah. And it came when you were 17 or 18? Yep. So early in life, yeah. But he was, you know, he was a guy that you that we all had a lot of respect for. Mm-hmm. Um, he was a great coach, and he didn't, other than coaching, he didn't say a whole lot. But if he wanted to sit you down and talk to you, you had to understand that that was something really important. Mm-hmm. And I knew that that it was really important mm-hmm. that he would set me down in his office and just have a one on one. Uh, I, I knew it was important. I see. Mm. You talked a little bit about uh, growing up with eight brothers and sisters. There were nine of you total. You're the youngest of five boys. Mm-hmm. And your father wasn't around by the time you were around. Correct. Um what what were some of the um what what was it what was it like growing up in that environment and what might have been some of the the challenges that you faced as a young child or a young man I knew that there are some things that that people in a two parent family get that I didn't get but I really don't feel like I missed out on very much mm-hmm. because as I said my older brothers were kind of my role models. They were kind of my lead. I kind of wanted to do what they did and kind of follow them. And they were guys who disciplined me. Um, Even when my mother wasn't around, when she was just trying to make sure that we had food every day. Mm -hmm. So those guys disciplined me and made sure that I stayed in line. So Mm -hmm. I I don't know what it's like to grow up in a two-parent household. Didn't have that. So 
don't know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it, it doesn't even need to be a, a two-parent household necessarily. Um, I, I loved what you were saying about um, growing up with your brothers and how they kept you in check. And then as your life has progressed, that's part of what's kept you grounded. Sure. Was having this experience of other people keeping you in check, which it it sounds like, you know, allowed you to then sort of keep yourself in check. Mm -hmm. Right. Were there other sort of learnings or elements like that, that as you look back, maybe you didn't realize it at the time, but later on, you know, those became helpful or, or valuable to you? Well, the first and biggest influence of my entire life was my mother. You know, they're, you know, my, my brothers, yeah, they had a big part in it, but more than anything, uh, my mother and the way she uh, worked, the way she um, dealt with people. So I had someone in my life every day, my mother, who showed me how you're supposed to treat people, mm-hmm. regardless of who they are. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I go to Philadelphia and I get, you know, I get to know the owner of the team and I have a relationship with him. Well, that guy that's responsible for washing my socks, you know, I have a special relationship with him as well. And, you know, just to have that, to be able to watch that every day, the way she handled people, the way she respected people, and it didn't matter if they were one of her bosses or someone hungry coming off the street needing a plate of food, uh, didn't matter. You know, you respect people because that's what you do mm-hmm. and probably more than anyone that that lady um, poured into my life um, in a in she's a big part of who I am mm. yeah mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I remember one of the biggest compliments I ever got was um, my pastor said to me and I was young that you really do have the spirit of your mother. And I started thinking about that. Like, wow. So better than any touchdown I've scored or any of that nonsense, you know, that to me is really big. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and what was it ab- about that that was, so, that was so big for you? Because that's the best person I've ever met, known in my life, my mother. So for someone to tell me or to compare me to her in a positive light, that's big for me. And was she still... I'm a mama's boy, if you can't tell. (laughs) 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 I was was starting to pick that up. I'm a mama's boy. Slowly but surely. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) How long did you have her with you? Um, 57 years. Lost my mom a couple of years ago. Mm. Yeah. She was around for a long time. Long time. She was 94. Wow. When she passed. Yeah. <clears throat> yep. She lived a good long life. She sure did. We made her stop working um, the year I got drafted, 1982. I remember it well. I go tell mom to put in her notice that she's done. Mm. She put in her notice. That was her last day of work. <laughs> 
How did it feel for you to be able to say that? Listen, I knew what I was going to do. I knew as soon as I got to the NFL, first thing I was going to do was put her in a house of her own, Mm -hmm. and that's what I did. I bought her a house. The next thing was, well, no, kind of going on at the same time. I told my sister, take mom, you guys go look for a house. And the other thing was, tell mom to put in her notice because she's done work. And that's when she stopped working. Mm. And she just started doing like community stuff and she's heavily involved in the church already. So just doing that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. The things that she really enjoyed doing and um, not having to go out and scrape and try and feed us anymore. Right. Got that covered. Got that covered. Yeah. What was it like for you to give her that that gift there's nothing better than that for me to be able to um, kind of give to her after watching the way she sacrificed for us there's nothing better than that mm. I, there's nothing that I'll ever do that's better than that was that your proudest real-life accomplishment oh yeah yeah that I could say you don't have to work anymore here this is yours you don't have to worry about the note. You don't have to worry about anything. You just enjoy this. Yeah. What was her response? It doesn't get better than that. It doesn't get better than that. No. Um, she was a bit overwhelmed, but we kind of saw it coming. Because, you know, after, after my sophomore year, I started to get a lot of attention from the NFL. So I, I knew that I was going to be a high draft pick. Didn't know where I was going to go. And, you know, there's a lot surrounding where you go and how that all unfolds when draft day comes around. And I know that there are a lot of teams that are interested in me, but you can only go to one team. So when it finally happened, we kind of knew it was going to happen, but then it's like, okay, now let's get it done. So, you know, our, our podcast is about this concept of resilience. Yes. Right? And it it gives people like you, Mike, who are well-known, the opportunity to tell their lesser well-known resilience story. One of the the concepts of, of resilience that, that we've researched is this practice of possibility, being able to see multiple endpoints um, or being able to see multiple options, either different sets of goals or different ways to get to kind of the same endpoint or the same the same goal. I, I think you said something really interesting earlier. You knew pretty early on that you had a lot of options. Mm-hmm. You know, you could you could head toward the NBA, you yep. could head toward the NFL, you could think about the Olympics and track and field. Yep. Could you talk a little bit more about those possibilities that emerged for you and and how you made the choice or how your path led you to the NFL? So I knew that all of these things were possible. Even at when I was at North Carolina State, I ran track. And because the track coach knew that I could run track, that I could, you know, I could get places and get points for the team. So uh, many times I didn't even really practice that much for track. I, I would, so for the conference track meet, I would get out of spring training and I would train for two weeks just to run in the, in the conference meet and you know, get a first or second place or somewhere I could place. I could get points. I knew that I had all of this stuff, but it was just a matter of, you know, what's, what will I get the most out of? Mm-hmm. I knew I could play basketball, especially when I got to NC State. I played with all those guys that won the national championship, and, you know, I could play as well as anybody. But when I looked at me and 
physically, you know, I'm 6'3". I'm not, I don't have the best handle. So at 6'3", you really need to have a handle. You really need to be able to distribute the ball. Uh, a 6'3 score, you're not going to go very far at that point. And that's what I was thinking. So uh, track and field, yeah, track would be great, but you don't really make the money in track and field. Hmm. That was my thinking. Football. I could outrun nearly everybody. I can catch. I'm strong. I'm tough. Uh, you know, my brothers beat me around. and My brothers and their older their friends, they beat me around enough. You know, you're not going to punk me. <laughs> I'm not. So I just figured in football, that's that's my way to go. Mm. I can outrun people. I can catch the ball. I'm tough enough to play against anybody. Um, I know the game. I could get to the next level in football. Mm -hmm. That's kind of how I figured it out. Mm -hmm. Basketball, I just wasn't. If I if I was three inches tall, I would have probably gone to the NBA, mm -hmm. maybe even two. But I just figured at six three, I'm better off running a football, catching a football, outrunning people, and doing that whole bit. So that's kind of how I made the decision. When I went to the military academy, I kind of had to decide then because the basketball recruits were coming. I remember when Lefter Giselle, who was the coach at the University of Maryland, he came to work out the kid that was our big guy, Dell Solomon, 6'8", uh, power forward, center. And he ended up going to Europe playing for a lot of years. So he came to work out Dell. But they asked me to come in for the workout just because they needed to have other people. And at the end of the workout, Lefty Giselle wanted to talk to me as well as talking to Dale Solomon. And after that conversation with him, uh, I told my basketball coach that just to tell all the basketball uh, recruiters that I wasn't going to play basketball. I'm going to go to college to play football. I've decided that I'm going to do that. And I don't want to have conversations with anybody else about basketball. And how, how old were you when you... 18. You were 18. Yeah. What's it like to look back now and, and think about that 18-year-old and his level of strategy, how you thought through those options, and, and perhaps the gumption of that 18-year-old to say, hey, tell all those MBA recruiters I don't want to talk to them? Well, it, well if, I just... Uh, first, it was college, but I didn't want to talk to... I didn't want to waste their time. Uh huh. I didn't, because I knew that I was going to go to go somewhere to school to play football. Mm -hmm. And the only place I was going to go, other than to um, one of the ACC schools, would have been Southern Cal. And I never saw a Southern Cal guy come on our campus, and that's the only reason that I stayed on the on the East Coast. And I went back to see uh, Fork Union is in Virginia, and I said, and I was a bit homesick too. And it's all boys. And my girlfriend from high school, she was still around down there. So I'm going back to North Carolina. <laughs> and so I decided I'd go to NC State. Mm -hmm. My brother was at the University of North Carolina at the time. Mm -hmm. um, and he wouldn't sway me one way or the other. Mm -hmm. No, you make the decision yourself. I don't, I'm not going to. So he didn't. And on my recruiting trips, I was sold on, on NC State. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What, what was it about NC State that? that sold you? Um, a lot of it was the guys. So two of the guys from my high school, they were already there. Mm. And I just enjoyed the company of those guys there probably. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't the smartest decision, <laughs> I should say, 
because the offense that they ran didn't set didn't really fit my skill set. Mm-hmm. Um, so if someone was making a decision for me, they probably would not have chosen NC State. Mm-hmm. But I still got to show my skills, and you know I was still a first round draft pick. So they'll find you if you have it. They'll find you. If you have it, they'll find you. Yeah. If you have it, they'll find you. Yeah, they found me. Mm-hmm. Did you ever did you ever worry that you might miss your opportunity? No. No. You never worried that you had it but they wouldn't find you. No. No. Because at every level things worked out for me. Mm-hmm. Just like in high school, I, I when I got to Fork Union, I was most valuable in track. Probably the same in football. Basketball, I was really talented. Um, yeah, I already knew that. And my, my football coach at Fork Union, he thought that I had professional skills then. And you know, we played against freshman teams for Division One schools. And we played against Virginia military, VMI. We played against Navy, Army, the their freshman class. We, and... Uh, a lot of Division One schools, their freshman class, that's that was our competition. And I had no problems. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm. I, yeah, just touched, and you're, you're going to be gifted. You're going to have a lot of stuff to work with. Mm-hmm. I was blessed in that way. Yeah. How did you feel like, you know, your support network you know, supported you? And were you in a position where you had to, at times, intrinsically believe in your own skills when you were the only one? Uh, I just believe that early on, a lot of the things that you need, you you are equipped with. Mm-hmm. I just think that, you know, um, and you see a lot of people, not just in sports, but people who, as the term that you use, people who are resilient, mm-hmm. there are a lot of ways that that become a part of your DNA. Mm-hmm. And I think for me, early on, just having to uh, live the way I live, do some of the things that I had to do, uh, learn some lessons that I had to learn, I think all of those things make you resilient. Rather, if it's in sports or if it's in some other walk of life, I think you learn things early that... Um, that teach you how to bounce back. And, you know, they use the the football metaphor very often because you get knocked down a lot. Mm -hmm. And what do you do? You're not going to just lay there. you got to pick yourself up. you got to get ready for the next play. So I I just believe that you learn all of those things very early. Yeah. How to pick yourself up and how to bounce back and do what's necessary to keep moving forward. Mm-hmm. I just, and football is such a great example. Mm-hmm. And that's why, you know, I see how a lot of companies now, they want to hire people with a sports background because they're used to competition. They're used to having the wins and losses and they're used to the discipline that it takes to, to keep going, to keep moving forward. Um, but it really, for me, it goes all the way back to as a very young person, you know, learning how to be resilient and how to be strong and 
and just keep moving forward. There are always going to be things that can throw you off, but um, it's important to stay focused. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it was Nelson Mandela who said, um, don't judge me by my successes. Judge me by the number of times I fell down and, and got up again. Sure. Could you talk about one of those kind of key lessons, one of those times when you, you know, fell down, but instead of laying on the field, you, you got back up again that taught you about resilience? You get to a point where you, there's, there's no turning back. You got to keep moving forward. Mm-hmm. So there is no plan B. When you get knocked down, you got to get up and get back in the fight. There is no plan B. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, let me think. Like my first major injury, um, there's no way that I'm going to just stop. Mm-hmm. First major injury, then fix me. Tell me what the rehab protocol is. Tell me what the plan is for my rehab. Tell me um, when you expect me to be back in full strength. Just lay it out for me and let's get to work. Mm -hmm. That's just kind of the mentality you have to have. Mm. There's no plan B. There's Mm -hmm. just moving forward. Mm -hmm. Yeah. it's. I think that's a really fascinating concept to me, actually, because on the one hand, I believe in the power of choice, Mm -hmm. right? and the power to make a decision. And and so many people will say, I didn't have a choice or I didn't have another option. And mm-hmm. and sometimes that is used in the sense of, you know, I didn't have a choice, I couldn't go on, I wasn't able to, I, I didn't make a good choice because I, you know, I, I didn't have another option. Yeah. And then I think what's really fascinating Uh, about people who are resilient like yourself is they actually talk about not having a choice but not seeing any other choice but moving forward, but standing up. I think to me many times that was the only choice was to keep moving forward. Mm -hmm. I get it. I get it when everything is completely shut down. So like when it was time for me to retire from the game. Mm-hmm. It was time to retire. Mm-hmm. And then you set your focus on what's next in your life. Mm-hmm. Um, but until I got to the point where I realized that my legs, my knees are shot. They've been cut too many times. Um, you know, those early injuries that I had, th- there was no option. Mm-hmm. I'm I just let me know when do you think that I can rehab this and be able to play again. Mm-hmm. That was that was whole, that was the whole that was the marching order. Mm-hmm. Didn't want to even think about okay, it's time for me to do something else. Mm. But then when I you know after nine years in the league, I knew it was time to do something else. Um, you only get one body, you only get one life, and I only you know I, I knew that uh, my body was starting to fail me, and I couldn't do um, what I. Maybe I could have played a little bit more, but I couldn't do what I was accustomed to doing. Mm-hmm. Then it's time to go do mm-hmm. something else. Mm-hmm. I'd love to know a little bit more about that first injury to start with, perhaps. And um, maybe before we talk about the first injury, you know, you get off the plane, there's lots of cameras in your face. 
uh, you understand for the first time what the expression deer in headlights means. Yep. Yeah. What happens next in joining the NFL? What happens next is you go into a room with all of these other, with the rest of the cattle, with the rest of the herd, <laughs> and they start to thin out the herd to uh-huh. see who can play and who can't play. Uh-huh. That's what the training camps are all about. Training mm-hmm. camps are about finding out uh, who can and who cannot. Who can you count on? So they beat you up in training camps. I mean, they beat you up and then they beat you down and then they beat you back up again. Mm-hmm. And it's all to figure out who's tough enough to withstand the test of time. Mm-hmm. Who can I count on when things are down? When your back's against the wall, how many people in this room can I count on that mm-hmm. are going to go to war with me? Mm-hmm. That's what training camp's all about. You got to figure that out. Who's tough enough to last and who's tough enough to to endure all of this stuff? Mm-hmm. That's what it's all about. So mm-hmm. I go to training camp and you, know, you kind of weed out the guys that were really great collegiate players, but they're not cut out for the NFL. You weed them out really quickly. Mm. And probably within two or three weeks, you already know that, okay, this person is just here for a little while because we need bodies, but he's not one that's going to be here when it's all said and done. Mm-hmm. You start to weed them out very quickly. Mm-hmm. That's what that's what that whole process is about. Um, but when I got to the NFL, I was ready for the NFL. Mm. What, what do you think prepared you for the NFL? You know, you mentioned so there's such a high failure rate. Yeah. And you didn't even hit a speed bump, you said. My older brothers, my older brothers, their buddies. Um, yeah, because, you know, at, at like 15, 16, even in the summer, they had a, a men's summer league baseball that traveled around and played against other cities. It's like guys from the old Negro League that played baseball mm-hmm. and they, they loaded up in cars or an old bus and they traveled around from city to city. Mm-hmm. They were doing that where I grew up. And at 15 and 16, I had to play with those guys. And I'm standing at, at the plate with a bat in my hand and there's a 25-year-old pitcher on the mound mm-hmm. you know, firing fastballs and, mm-hmm. and curveballs at me. And I'm, and I'm 16 years old. Yeah. Had, yeah. So all of that stuff, you know, these guys. So all. So here's something interesting. When I went into I went into the uh, North Carolina, the state of North Carolina Sports Hall of Fame, um, and I talked about all of that kind of stuff mm-hmm. because all of those guys, like, I'm here because of all of those people, mm-hmm. and all of those people are are a part of this award, this thing that I'm. Yeah, because all of these people affected my life. Yeah. All of these people made me ready so that when I became a professional, I was ready because mm-hmm. of all the things that they took me through when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. I didn't have uh, one of these moments where the NFL was too big for me. I never had that because of all of those moments when I was a kid when guys were taking me through some of the biggest moments that when I really was scared. So when I'm 15, 16 years old, and you got a 25 year old on the mound throwing heat, you know that was that was nerve wracking. Mm-hmm. But that prepared me for all of this, these other things. When I became a, a professional, I wasn't really bothered by it, mm-hmm. any of that stuff. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Would you would you think of those things as as challenges that you faced early on, or, or how would you sort of characterize those um, moments that prepared you for later on? When I was young, yeah, that was just uh, sharpening me. That sharpening. was just yeah, yeah. That was just making me sharp. All of that stuff, mm-hmm. so that when I did get into those moments where most guys, the bright lights would bother them. Um, I wasn't bothered by a lot of stuff because I'd already gone through mm-hmm. having to face some difficult, very difficult situations with talented guys who ended up being at you know Division One AA or one of these levels just outside of Major League Baseball. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Did you did you have the presence of mind in the moment when you're a 15 or a 16 year old and you're you're on the mound and the pitcher's 25 years old and he's he's throwing heat, he's bringing the heat. Uh, did you have the presence of mind to think to yourself, this is preparing me for the future? Not what, at what all. Was, what was going through your head at that time? <laughs> all I wanted to do was get the bat on the ball. <laughs> I wasn't thinking about that. First of all, I didn't want to get hit. That's the last thing I wanted was... Well, somebody hit me. Yeah. Well, the other thing was, I just want to get the bat on the ball. Because uh-huh. if I can get the bat on it, I can get to first base. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> fast enough, I can get down to first base if I can get the bat on the ball. Uh-huh. So that's all I thought about. Yeah. But all of that stuff. And, and it's just, you know, I, I look at a lot of young kids and I watch them training and, and playing games. And it's all just preparing you for, um, for other things. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and you don't know it when you're that young, mm-hmm. but it it does it does prepare you for other things. Mm-hmm. What I love about resilience and what I love about what you're describing is, in fact, it isn't you know for a period of time, sometimes many years later, where we can look back and say, oh, mm-hmm. that moment was giving me this nugget. That moment That's was right. giving me this gift that I now have here today. That leads me to a thought. You know, you. Um, there's a motivational speaker that I listen to. His name is Eric Thomas. He calls himself E.T. Mm-hmm. So an E.T. talks about your why. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I've heard him speak to different groups, and especially with young athletes. You know, he, he poses that question to them. What's your why? You know, mm-hmm. what's your motivation? Mm-hmm. Why do you do this? Mm-hmm. And it's something that I didn't quite understand when I was young, mm-hmm. my why. But when I look back and I look at the opportunities that that I've had, when I got a chance to go to Fork Union, then when I got a scholarship to go to North Carolina State, I didn't want to blow it. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to screw up these opportunities. So I guess I'm saying it to say my my why was probably the fear of failing and having to go back to Hamlet rather than I jump in my car and I drive to Hamlet whenever I choose to go there, mm-hmm. you know, on my own terms, rather than being forced to because I screwed up, an opportunity that don't many people get. So then you make it to the NFL. It didn't matter to me who lined up in front of me, like, dude, <laughs> you better get ready. You're gonna have a long day mm. because I'm about to tear you. <laughs> Is this PG? <laughs> I won't so, let my children listen. So, listen, if a guy lined up on me, you got to know, you better be at your very best because I'm about to try to rip your heart out. 
and that was just kind of the attitude. Mm-hmm. I'm not going back to Hamlet. I'm not going to be forced to go back to Hamlet. Mm-hmm. When I go back to Hamlet, it's going to be on my own terms. Mm. That was my mentality. So my why was the fact that um, I got a, I got an opportunity here that not many people get. This is an opportunity that so many people would break an arm for. Mm-hmm. And you're going to stand in front of me and try and deny me? Not going to happen. So that fear of of failing was something that was such a, a driving force for me mm. um, that I just, I wanted to make sure that um, that I'd lick this thing. I got this opportunity and I'm gonna lick it. Mm-hmm. That was that was kind of the way I approached things. I was never boastful about it, never bragged about it, never even talked about it. Mm-hmm. But if you lined up on me, it came out. Mm-hmm. That, that's That's what I'm about. I'm about to break you down. Mm. Yep. Mm. So when when ET and, and so when I talk to kids, uh, you know that's something that I'll bring up to them. Like, you know, think about this. What's your why? Why are you doing this? What made what motivates you to do this? Mm-hmm. You want to be on the team so you get the girls. You want to be on the team so that you you walk around in in your letter jacket and people know who you are. Mm-hmm. You know what's your what's your why? Mm-hmm. And you have to think about things like uh, I mm-hmm. love to put that on on a young man's head, mm-hmm. so that he can think about what he's doing, why he's doing it. Mm-hmm. Later, I found. Later, I realized. You know, I look back, as you said earlier, when mm-hmm. you look back and you can see different phases in your life, um, and now I have a chance to do that. Um, yeah, mm-hmm. that was it. Mm-hmm. Um, because I was, you know, growing up, I had to do a lot of different things that um, I wouldn't want to do. I wouldn't want to have to, like, <clears throat> some of the work, like cleaning bricks or collecting bottles or working in the fields just to get a couple of bucks in your pocket, I knew that wasn't me. Mm-hmm. I knew I had to do it then because I wanted to get five bucks or two bucks in my pocket. I had mm-hmm. to do it. Mm-hmm. It was a means to an end. But that's not me. That's not who I am. That's not what I'm going to be. Mm-hmm. And so when I got an opportunity to get out of there, as much as I love where I grew up, mm-hmm. I'll go when I choose to go. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because these opportunities that are in front of me, oh, I'm about to kick the door in. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You rose to the occasion. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. But but then again, again, it goes back to all that sharpening that those guys mm-hmm. like poured into me. How were you able to harness the fear of failing for your success and not allow that fear to incapacitate you in some way? So I, I think this whole competition thing, mm-hmm. I think you learn how to how to block out certain elements and focus in on what needs to take place. Mm-hmm. So the great players, so you can watch some people like like a Tom Brady mm-hmm. or um, Aaron Rodgers, he's a good example. Nick Foles in the Super Bowl in, in that stretch. You watch those guys, all of this chaos going on around them. There's so many things that are flying around there, there's so much chaos, but if you check their pulse, they're probably real steady. Mm-hmm. It's probably really calm mm-hmm. because that's what you have to do. Mm-hmm. Even in the midst of all sorts of chaos, you got to be able to calm yourself 
and focus in. That's what. That's why practice is so important mm-hmm. because you got to rehearse those things so that when there's all this stuff going on around you, your, your focus has to be on, you know, that step that I have to make or that move that I have to make because you've practiced this, you've rehearsed it so many times. And if you, keep, if you can keep that single focus and get it right, then the band strikes up. Then mm. the cheerleaders are screaming and the crowd goes wild and all of that good stuff. Yeah. But that's what it is. It's being able to, to calm yourself and singularly, singularly focus on the task. So we've talked a lot about, you know, intelligence quotient, IQ, why people are successful. Yep. Emotional quotient, emotional intelligence, EQ, right? And and what's emerging in, in some of the literature now is this concept of AQ or the adversity quotient. Mm-hmm. And what it's about is really similar to what you're talking about. I'd, lo- I'd love your take. The adversity quotient is about the extent to which people can tolerate being in an environment where they're continually exposed to fear and failure. (laughs) Did you find that people were more successful who could remain in an environment or remain connected with fear and failure for for a prolonged period of time? Without a doubt, no. I think when you've gone through it enough times, mm-hmm. um, it's not that you get comfortable with going through it, but the next time is a little bit easier to handle mm-hmm. and to take because you, you're you able to get through it the first time. Mm-hmm. What separates people are the people that are resilient enough to, um, to withstand, that have enough backbone that they can keep getting up when, you know, I... When I was six years old, the little shack that we lived in mm-hmm. was burned to the ground. Mm. Everything that we owned, except what we were wearing that day, mm-hmm. was gone up in that fire. Mm. Um, how do you handle that? When you're my mother, you've got nine kids. I think two might have been gone, gone, like already moved out. At least one, my older brother James. But how do you handle that? Mm-hmm. Now, that to me is really showing resilience. Mm-hmm. When you're able to bounce back from a situation like that, uh, we were spread it out for a little while at different families in my church living there until my mom could get us all back together in one place. Mm-hmm. But um, that to me is very, very difficult mm-hmm. to deal with. Mm-hmm. How do you even start to deal with that mm-hmm. and then pull it back together? Right. And all of these kids end up graduating high school, except my oldest brother, he moved away. Um, And seven of the nine went to some college or um, university somewhere. Um, Six of the nine graduated college. How do you do that? Mm You know, how mm-hmm. do you how do you pull that back together mm-hmm. and have the type of success? So that's what fascinates me. Mm-hmm. People like my mother. Yeah, yeah, I played ball. People like my mother who can who can raise kids and and pour into them the the stuff that she poured into us mm-hmm. that would give us enough to 
have the successes that we've had, mm-hmm. um, that fascinates me. Yeah. Someone who can do that. Yeah. Yeah. Because I don't get it. I have two kids, and I'm just hoping that they stay alive. Uh-huh. <laughs> I'm just hoping that uh, that they become nice, productive young men and yeah. have, have good lives. Yeah. How do you do what my mother did? You know? Yeah. I, that. It's, yeah, I can catch a ball. I yeah. can outrun people. Yeah, that's no. To me, that's no big deal. How do you do what she did? Mm-hmm. And all of these, like, really good people that she raised. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember the when they had the service after she passed away. The people in that town, they'd never seen anything like it. It's like some rock star came from the town, and they having this big ceremony mm-hmm. to um, memorialize this person. And it's my mom. Yeah. People came from... I've never seen anything like it, and mm-hmm. no one in, in that town had ever seen anything like it. Mm-hmm. The effect that she had on that town and the people in that town. Um, yeah, we're talking about, you know, me and sports and all that, but it goes well beyond that. It mm-hmm. goes so much deeper than that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. My life goes a whole lot deeper than the fact that I could outrun people and I could catch a football. Mm-hmm. So you've talked a bit about, or quite a bit actually, about how your your mother played a significant role in your brothers and in your family growing up. Um, as you think about your career and some of those key inflection points of entering into the NFL, um, transitioning, you know, from the league into retirement, creating and recreating your identity as the person you are, mm-hmm. could you talk a little bit about? those connected relationships and and how those relationships supported and and helped mold you and and expand you well for me i keep going back to the Mm -hmm. beginning Mm. because it all has an effect on like how i was able to transition from football to business to the broadcast booth to television um it's all interconnected, mm-hmm. and and still there's that element of fear. There's still that why. I get an opportunity to um, work in a broadcast booth with Merrill Reese, and you're talking about an icon mm-hmm. in the broadcast industry. Mm-hmm. You're talking about one of the greatest voices in all of sports, and I get an opportunity to work with him as an analyst on radio. I had no idea what I was doing. Mm. When I first started, I was horrible. I had no clue. But after my first year, I studied people, and I started to pick it up. I went to NFL Films, and I got tapes of people that were doing the job that I should be doing, that I just botched up the entire season. And I started to just take information, and I started to write stuff, and I started to understand uh, what the listening audience needed to get. All of this is stuff that that was acquired years ago in me just learning how to be me. I have this opportunity once again to work with, with Merrill and I didn't want to blow it. I wanted to lick it, so I started to do my homework. I started to do my research and I figured it out. And 22 years later, I'm still in that same seat working side by side with him doing the Eagles radio broadcast and it's a beautiful thing. Mm-hmm. It's a great life. So, yeah, I have um, recreated myself a couple of different times. I've got 
a couple of other things that are going on in my life. But it's still, to me, it goes back to the fundamentals and the things that I was taught as a young kid. And the fact that I have, um, I've put myself in a position because I made good on that place. So when I get to this place, um, if I make good at this place, then maybe I'll get another opportunity. So it's, it's about being a good steward of what mm-hmm. you have. So, and being a good steward in what I have opens up other opportunities and if I'm a good steward there it's going to open up other opportunities Mm -hmm. and that's my answer Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so I love what you were saying there about you know your why and and being in a place with Meryl where where once again you were faced with this fear of failure and I, I was curious earlier when you were talking about the fear of failure of having to go back to Hamlet, not on your own terms, right? And that was your initial driver. Um, Has fear of failure continued to be your why over time of of what's driven you or or has that evolved in some way? I I think it will always evolve. I think whatever your why is today, Mm -hmm. 10 years from now, not necessarily your why. Um, And no, it's not my why today, mm-hmm. but it was. And especially when you get a new opportunity. Mm-hmm. When you get a new opportunity, you don't want to mess it up. Mm-hmm. Um, but my why today, completely different. I'm looking at riding off into the sunset, so everything now is kind of in preparation to um, kick back, relax, play golf, mm-hmm right off into the sunset. What would you like your why to be? What would you like your why to become? And are there still things you're dreaming about doing that you haven't done yet? I'm, I'm heavily involved now in the First Tee program. In the what? The First Tee of Greater Philadelphia. First Tee. Yeah, first the First Tee. So the First Tee is really centered around getting kids involved in golf, mm-hmm. particularly kids who wouldn't normally have an opportunity to be around the golf course or the golf community. Um, and quite honestly, the, the golf is the hook to get kids in. We're really trying to create, build better citizens, better people. Mm. So you, you get kids involved in the first tee program, in the golf program, and you start teaching them core values, values that they can that'll enrich their lives throughout their lives. Mm-hmm. That'll teach them how to be better people. That's what the First Tee program's all about. So I'm involved in the First Tee. That's my main charity now, but it's more than that. That's my main mission, to get a lot of these kids, especially from underprivileged areas, communities, like the one that I grew up in, mm-hmm. giving them an opportunity to touch some of the people that are involved in the game of golf because I just think that that's a great environment for young people to learn and grow. Um, so as my why changes, I wanna be more involved in that sort of thing. I'll get to the point where you know work is not that big of an issue for me anymore and I don't wanna work forever. I'd rather just be a service and, and help out in areas where I can help. Mm-hmm. That's that's kind of my plan. Mm-hmm. Without going into the details of it, that's kind of my plan mm-hmm. is to, in a few years, just get more involved in uh, servicing areas where 
people are focusing on kids and trying to enrich the lives of kids. Mm. Yep. And and how would you encapsulate that in a in a why statement? My why is what what is it becoming? Giving back. Giving back. Yeah, I am richly blessed in so many ways, and um, I want to pay it forward. I want to give some of this back too. Um, and you know, I've been doing that for a while, but. I want to get to a point where I'm not so involved in anything other than that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. Mm. I love that giving back. You talked. We talked a moment ago about connection and the importance of relationships. And uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> and um, you mentioned that you hoped that you've you've instilled some of the values and lessons that you have and that your mother gave to you into your son. Yes. Uh, if, if you have done that, what, what would that be? Um, just good people, mm-hmm. just to the core, good people. Mm-hmm. We're all, we all have faults. We all, none of us are perfect, but, um, just core good people that, um, that are concerned about others and not just so uh, caught up in themselves, but people who have a heart for other people. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, just good citizens. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Respectful. And I think I've done that. I think they're very good men. They're very respectful. Uh, they're caring people. Uh, to me, that's really important. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Well, uh, it's been wonderful to spend time with you today. Thank you very much. Thank uh, you for stopping by our, our show. Wonderful lessons and knowledge that you have shared and imparted. Pretty cool stuff. I like what you're doing. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Doc. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, sir. I'm so glad you tuned into this episode with me, Dr. Taryn Marie and Mike Quick. I love how Mike talked with us about how we stay grounded and humble, even when we enter the public eye. And of course, Mike shared with us his incredible career, his ability to make a choice between being an Olympic hurdle jumper, going to the NBA, or joining the NFL. What a tremendous slate possibility. We ask you to download this episode, leave us a review, and please share with your family members, your friends, your colleagues. We'd love to share our work more broadly and for these conversations to get to benefit the people that you most love in your life. Until next time, this is Dr. Taryn Marie with Flourish or Full Stories of Resilience.